Would you open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 1 in this, our last study in our series. When I was a boy, I um, tried to impersonate people. And I'd get in trouble for doing it because I would like do it on the spot. I would just notice the way people phrase certain words or little affectations and gestures. And, and so I would do that. And then I tried to impersonate famous people. I'd stand in the mirror and try to look and act and do their little voice uh, things. And uh, then um, several years back, somebody actually gave me this book, How to Impersonate Famous People. So I thought, perfect. All the ones I wanted to do. And um, for instance, it talks about Elvis in here that you have to sneer. That's the most important thing is the upper lip kind of moving up. And then... Um, uh, how to move your head and you know, say thank you, thank you very much, and, and um, the jeans to wear. And then there's one here on Mahatma Gandhi. And uh, you, you need a white sheet, sandals, and a stick. And um, it says that you wrap yourself up in the sheet, you put on a bathing cap, that's to give the bald head look. Then you put on spectacles and sandals, and you stand slightly bent at the stomach and lean on the stick. And then number seven, refuse a, any trays of food with a remark like, not a single pickle will pass my lips until my people are at peace. <laughs> and there's uh, many such, many such things in here, how to impersonate famous people. We are called to impersonate famous people. Not Elvis, not Gandhi but Jesus Christ and those who have followed him and followed God wholeheartedly through their lives. That's what the Old Testament gives to us, a pattern of examples of what to do, what to follow, and what to stay away from. We have done a series on movers and shakers, and um, there are some of them that we should take their example and emulate. That doesn't mean that we are to impersonate them like this book says. We don't put on a robe and sandals and grow long hair and a beard and say, Verily, verily, to our friends, or thus saith the Lord, when we sit down at a meal with them. But by their obedience, by their lifestyle, and by their faithfulness, we copy them. The writer of Hebrews said, Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Even Paul, the great apostle, could say, follow me as I follow the Lord. Imitate me as I imitate the Lord. To the Philippians, he wrote, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. That's great. He's saying, this is what you shoot for. This is where you aim. Follow these examples of faithfulness, of love, and of obedience. When we began our series 16 weeks ago, This is the 16th study. We began with a quote by Galen Anderson. In fact, um, I'm going to give you that same quote and come full circle and just sort of tie a bow on this series. I've taken my title this morning from this quote that I'm about to read. I'm calling this message, Be an Oak Tree, Not a Tumbleweed. For this reason, listen to his quote once again. A man's life is like either the tumbleweed or the oak tree. Some people just grow like the weed. They are of no value in their youth, 
And as the years of life come, they break loose and become a blotch on society. They have no useful purpose in life, just drifters. Their loved ones will mourn their loss, but society will not miss them. Then there are those whose lives are like the oak. They have turned from the frivolity of this life, and they have invested in things that have genuine worth. Their influence for good will live on in the lives of others after they are gone. Their death is noticed because their lives were spent bettering the nation and the community. They will be missed. Which are you imitating? The tumbleweed or the oak tree? The influence that we give off to others is either negative or positive. It's never neutral. Everywhere we go, we are leaving footprints for our children to follow in, for our grandchildren to follow in, for friends, for co-workers, neighbors, etc. An old proverb says, one generation plants the trees and another gets the shade. That's a lovely proverb. It's only the oak tree that gives the shade. Tumbleweeds don't give much shade, unless you're a flea. And you can fly with the weed as it tumbles through the dirt road. Be an oak, not a tumbleweed. We have looked at a series of people who have been both on some occasions. We've looked at Hannah and Elkanah, her husband, and their son Samuel, and looked at Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. We've seen Saul and David and Jonathan, Abigail. Movers and shakers, people who influence their culture. Many for good, some for evil. I'm having you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1 as sort of a final cap, if you will, on the series, a final warning. David is given a message in this chapter that Saul, the king, is dead. This is before David, obviously, ascends to the throne. We're backtracking a bit. And the message comes to him in verse 17. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. 2 Samuel 1, now verse 18. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. Listen to this. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, that's where Saul was killed with Jonathan, let there be no dew nor rain upon you nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away from there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. And again in verse 27, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. Not only literally had the mighty fallen in battle, but the mighty oak tree had fallen. Saul had such potential to not only become but stay a mighty influence for the nation, but the oak tree became a tumbleweed, in effect. How the mighty have fallen, laments David. And he's very... Insistent that the children learn this song, that this lesson stay perpetuated in Israel. Learn a lesson, he says, from Saul. Don't do this. 
Don't become a tumbleweed when you can become an oak. The sad thing is that David himself would fall years after this. We touched on that the last couple of weeks. And Nathan the prophet said, it's because of your example that God's enemies are blaspheming. And so once again, even in David's life, when he should have grown continually, he stepped way back and became, for a time, you might say, a tumbleweed. God's business is not only about catching fish. And I'm speaking metaphorically in terms of evangelism. God doesn't just save people and that's the end of the journey. That's just the beginning of the journey. Now, we always rejoice when we see people come to Christ, and just about every week we see that. That's just the beginning. Jesus cleans all the fish that he catches. He just doesn't catch fish and say, great, just bring in more fish. He wants to then grow us up. Imagine a fisherman who would catch fish and just store them in his closet week after week, month after month, and you come to see him and he shows you his closet. Of course, the minute you walk in the door, what's that stink? Oh, come here, let me show you my fish. God's purpose in our life is we come to him and then he gets to use us for his glory. And we can become movers and shakers, people of influence. I want this morning to sum up the last 15 weeks in this message. I want to tie a bow on it all. And rather than expositionally picking apart a text, which is what I normally do, I'm going to depart from that and give you a jet tour through the two books we covered in the last 15 weeks. And I want to give you six observations as I peruse the literature, First and Second Samuel, six observations of influential people. And of course, I mean spiritually influential people. Six observations. Observation number one, influential people can be any people. Anyone can do it. We have the story of Hannah, a young woman married to a godly man named Elkanah. We have the story of Abigail, a woman married to an ungodly man named Nabal. We have a story of young Samuel, Josephus said, was 12 years of age when he started prophesying in full-time ministry. We have the story of Saul, who came from the smallest, most insignificant tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. We have a story of David, a shepherd kid, red-headed, musician out in the fields. God wrote, raised him up to become the second king of the nation. The point is... God can use anyone of any age, any time, in either gender. All it takes is a person who will, like Isaiah, say, Hey, here I am, Lord. Send me. It is not just the seminary grads that God uses who have a proficient ability to speak Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. God isn't just after elderly men with white beards and long robes like the pictures or the holy cards portray them with little frisbees around their head, the halos. God can and use use anyone. It was to the twelve apostles, mostly fishermen, one, an IRS member, Matthew the tax collector, that Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Gave them that commission. Yet that is not how we think. 
in our modern culture and in our modern church culture, we think that you have to attain some high level of knowledge, etc., for God to use you. For instance, in my files I found this from the Institute for Church Development. A ministry designed, it says, for single adults is likely to succeed when all the following occurs. This is simply a little letter on how to get a singles ministry started. A ministry designed for single adults is likely to succeed when all the following occur. Let me just give you the first one. Number one, an attractive, articulate, hardworking, organized single adult wants to work hard at getting it started. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But given that description, now think of Peter starting a singles ministry in your church. Organized, articulate? I don't think so. Now think about Thomas starting the singles ministry. He'd be pessimistic about everything. And yet Jesus chose those kinds of people to come alongside of him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. For God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the mighty. God has chosen the base things, the things that are not, to put to shame the things that are. Here's the reason why, 1 Corinthians 1. That no flesh should glory in His presence. God will often look for anyone and raise them up so that when the ministry is done, they don't say, well, it's because He's articulate, uh, good-looking, and organized. They go, it's got to be God. Because He's a nitwit. And then God gets all the glory. It's not that we go out of the way to find unattractive and inarticulate people. The point is, it doesn't matter. God can use the brilliant minds like Paul the Apostle or the fishermen like Peter. God is not just looking for Phi Beta Kappas to do His work or the seasoned famous athlete, the brilliant scientist or the entertainer. And so often that's what we think. Oh, if only God would save that entertainer or that athlete or that brilliant scientist to influence people. That'd be great, certainly. But you know what? God doesn't require it. God can use anyone. In 178 A.D., listen to this quote. It's a quote from the philosopher Celsus who mockingly wrote of the Christian church as he observed it. Quote, Let no cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible, for all that kind of thing we count evil. If any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anyone is a fool, let him come boldly and become a Christian. We see them, that is, them, the Christians. We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the most vulgar, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in the mud. That's what the rest of the cultured world thought of the early church. You know why? Because common, simple people were flooding into the church because the gospel was a message for them. The gospel was preached to the poor. 
The common person heard Jesus gladly. And it was the common person that was so attracted to the message. Whereas the person with a little more pride, a little more education, a little hepper than thou, wouldn't come. Oh, I don't need that stuff, that crutch. And so there would be no repentance with that kind of pride. And so the commoners came and God was using them to turn their empire around. Influential people can be anyone. Second observation about our series. Influential people keep spiritual priorities. It's what makes them influential. Spiritual, influential people keep spiritual priorities. Without exception, we find this in our study, uh, all of their lives were centered on God. Let's begin with Hannah. Hannah was barren. She came to the tabernacle in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel in chapter 2. And it says, In bitterness of soul, she prayed to the Lord and wept. She made God the center of her pain. Even when she had a child, she dedicated the child to the Lord, raised the child in a godly environment. Her home was God-centered. Samuel, the child she had, was raised in the tabernacle since he was 12 years of age. And the people who were his mentors were pretty corrupt. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. Eli was apathetic, didn't care. And so here's a kid raised with, with people around him who were corrupt. But he didn't become corrupt. He kept his heart and mind centered on God so that in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, he said, Speak, Lord, I'm listening. Your servant hears. Later on, when he became a prophet in chapter 7, he stood before the people and said, Return to the Lord with all your hearts. Same chapter. He called the people together and said, Call all of Israel and have them gather at Mizpah, and there I will pray for you to the Lord. Everything God-centered. Saul, the king, began spiritually. Didn't end up that way, but he started certainly with a centered spirituality. It says in chapter 10, the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he prophesied among the prophets. Then there was his son, Jonathan. Jonathan chased David throughout the towns of Israel when David fled from Keilah out into the wilderness. It says, Jonathan came to him there and strengthened his hand in God. Strengthened his confidence in God once again. And what about David? He was called a man after God's own heart. I love, when I think of David, I love to picture the young kid standing before that tall lug of a guy named Goliath and looking at him with such faith, saying, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. Well, I come to you in the name of the Lord God, the living God, whose armies you have defied. I love that. His fighting is God-centered. Then there's Abigail in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel who met angry David when he was coming to kill her husband and all of the troops. And she said, The Lord has appointed you as the ruler over Israel. Saying, don't add this to the iniquities. My point in saying all this is that to be spiritually influential, you got to be spiritual. That's pretty obvious. Keep priorities, spiritual priorities. Uh, I found an old recipe on how to prepare rabbit. 
And it begins with this injunction. First, catch the rabbit. Wow, that's profound. It's obvious, right? If you're going to prepare a rabbit, you've got to have one. Here's the recipe for spiritual influence. First, be spiritual. Then you'll have something to pass on to others. Keep your priorities straight. Think about what is eternal versus what is temporal. And keep your life filtered through that lens of the will of God and the eternal perspective. Over in Milan, Italy, there is a great cathedral in Milan that has a triple archway entrance. And over each arch is an inscription. Over one arch is an inscribed wreath of roses engraved into the stone. And just underneath that is the inscription, All that which pleases is but for a moment. Over the other archway is an engraved cross in the stone under which is inscribed, All that which troubles is but for a moment. And right in the middle, through the grand central entrance that would usher you into the main aisle of the cathedral, is the inscription that says, That only is important which is eternal. Boy, if we could keep those three things in our mind, we could make an impact on people. All that pleases is momentary. All that troubles is momentary. The only important thing is the eternal stuff. That which is eternal. If we're ever going to influence anyone, children, grandchildren, spouse, friends, co-workers, neighbors, if we're going to ever influence anyone for God, we have to know God and love God and follow God and be spiritually minded. Or it won't do anything. We can easily become a tumbleweed just drifting through. Here's a study regarding that. This study said that if both mom and dad attend church regularly, they themselves are spiritually minded people, outwardly at least. If they attend church regularly, there's a 72% chance of their kids remaining faithful. Whereas if only dad attends church regularly, there's a 55% chance the kids will remain faithful. If mom only, there is a 15% chance. Spiritually influential people keep spiritual priorities. Third observation about our series, influential people are influenced by others. They're not isolated. They're not alone. They're not the lone ranger. They don't need anybody else. They use everybody around them, and there's an accountability. Hannah comes to the tabernacle. She listens to the advice of Eli the priest when he says, Go in peace, dear woman. God has heard your prayers. She does. She goes home in peace, trusting that God has heard her prayers. Her son Samuel takes all of the mentoring from Eli, is influenced by him. Later on, David took advice and encouragement from Jonathan, took orders from Saul, took counsel from Abigail. He was influenced by these other influential people. Even Eli, the priest, in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, receives the prophetic word spoken to him by that 12-year-old kid, Samuel. And what's noteworthy about that is that it was a prophetic word against Eli and against his family. And Eli could have said, Listen here, you young whippersnapper. I've been around this tabernacle a long time. But he said, Oh, this is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. You've spoken rightly. And he received it. Influential people are not prideful. 
influential people are willing to receive from others, whereas a recluse is simply a selfish person, a person who isolates himself, doesn't want any input from anybody else. He is kept inside the walls he has built, walls of protection. Don't get close to people. Those kind of people are very dangerous people. Proverbs 18 reads this, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding, but only in expressing his own heart. That's a fool. He won't let himself be influenced by others. He's influenced only by his own thoughts bouncing around in his brain. No accountability. And as I said, that's not a spiritually influential person. It is a foolish person and it's a dangerous person. Case in point, Saul. Saul became more isolated as time went on. And like Saul, Adolf Hitler. Influential person, to say the least, for the wrong reason. Albert Speer wrote a book called Inside the Third Reich which he describes his relationship with Adolf Hitler. And he says, quote, I suppose if Adolf Hitler ever had a friend, I would have been that friend. Hitler could fascinate. He wallowed in his own charisma. But he could not respond to friendship. Instinctively, he repelled it. The normal sympathies that normal men and normal women enjoy were just not in him. At the core of the place where his heart should be, Hitler was a hollow man. He was empty. We who were close to him, or thought we were, all came to sense this, however slowly. You couldn't even enjoy eating cherries with him. We all were simply projections of his gigantic ego. So much like Saul. Started out well, but quickly deteriorated and influenced the nation for evil. So, influential people can be any people. Influential people keep spiritual priorities. Influential people are influenced by others. Fourth observation of our series. Influential people are always tested. They start gaining momentum and something happens, some crisis, some test, sometimes a whole series of them. Test who they are, what kind of fabric they're made out of. Keep them on the course. Hannah, tested by barrenness. She came and trusted God and worshipped God in the midst of her trial. She passed the test. Samuel was tested by corruption. His nation was corrupt. His fellow priests were corrupt. His mentor was apathetic, and yet he remained faithful and he passed the test. But later on, I think Samuel failed a test. His own family Just like his mentor Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were corrupt, Samuel grew up, grew old, had two sons. One was named Joel, the other was named Abijah, and they were corrupt. Remember? Remember when the nation came to him and said, hey, you're you're an old dude, and your kids are corrupt, and we want a king to reign over us. Maybe he was so overcommitted to the ministry, he didn't balance his life out and nurture his own family. But I think he failed that test. Saul started out well, passing the test. In fact, when he was tested in character, and the prophet Samuel said, hey, you're the next king. You're the king. You're you're what everybody wants. 
He said, me? I'm the least in my father's house? And I've got the smallest tribe in all of Israel? And my father's house is the least house in all the tribe? He was humble. He believed that. But he failed every other test after that and was disqualified later on. David was tested. He was tested in his faith and he passed the test with Goliath. He was tested in his anger. Remember Saul threw a spear at him? What did David do? Did he grab the spear once thrown and say, Okay, now I've got the spear, Saul. (laughs) Throw it back at him. No, the scripture says he ducked and he fled. He passed the test. He didn't retaliate. But later on, he failed the same test, didn't he? The test of anger. When Nabal wouldn't feed David and his boys lunch, remember, he got ballistic and he says, okay, I'm hungry. I'm going to find all those guys and kill them. Why? Because they didn't feed you? So he failed that test. Later on, David was tested in regard to obedience to the Word of God, reading the fine print. Would he be the kind of guy who says, this is what the Bible says? Or would he say, ah, who cares? It's good enough. When he was to move the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6, ah, who cares? He didn't read the fine print. There was judgment upon the, the boys that did it. But he passed the same test toward the end of that chapter. Found what the Bible says about how to move an ark. He passed it. Then finally, David was tested in regards to his own personal purity and the integrity he has with his family. And he failed the test. As he lusted after Bathsheba, had an adulterous affair with her, killed Uriah, her husband. He suffered, they suffered, his wives suffered, his children suffered ramifications for years to come. He failed that test. I was reading this week about a a head coach who divorced his wife after 26 years. He was the head coach of a college football team, and he became the head coach of an NFL team. As soon as he was given the position of the NFL coach, he divorced his wife, saying that he needed his wife while coaching on the college level for social functions and to show families that he would be looking out for their sons. But now that he was promoted, he says a wife is an unnecessary accoutrement and a distraction to winning the game. And then he said his main concern in life is winning football games. And second, he said, were his two sons. He failed that test. The people that God uses face tests in life. shows us what we're made of. It proves our character and it strengthens the fabric of our faith. Keep something in mind. When God tests us, it's not to see if we're going to fall. It's to prove that we can stand. James chapter 1. You know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The word testing means approval. To test something to approve it. Not to see if you can fall, to prove if you can stand. Listen, when God gives you a test, the angels aren't aren't in heaven and God isn't saying, 10 to 1, he's going to fail. Let's take a bet right now. Come on, let's have a pool going. They're not taking bets on you. It's because God knows you can stand the test. He won't give you more than you can handle. God's goal is maturity, not failure. Fifth, influential people 
preserve their culture. This is where it gets good. It's the reason God uses us to make an impact now. Influential people preserve their culture. Think of it. Were it not for Hannah, Israel would have had no prophet to revive it. Were it not for Samuel, the priesthood and the nation as corrupt as it was would have gone into judgment by God. Were it not for David, the Philistines would have come from Gath and Ashkelon and Ashdod and conquered God's people. Were it not for Jonathan, David would have been killed by Saul and would have drowned in discouragement. Were it not for Abigail, David would have committed the sin of multiple murder, which would have added to his tainted reputation. And so influential people preserve their culture. Back to what Jesus said. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how can it be salty again? It is therefore good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Think of that statement. You're the salt of the earth. In the Greek, it's emphatic. You and you only are the salt of the earth. The metaphor is interesting. The analogy is revealing. You're salt. They didn't have freezers and refrigerators in those days. And meat left out would quickly corrode, decay. And so to preserve the meat from decaying, they rub salt into the meat to retard any corruption. So for Jesus to say, you are the salt of the earth, reveals something about the world. He's saying the world is corrupt, it's decayed, it's rotten. I don't know if you've ever smelled rotten meat. I used to work in a delicatessen in California. Hugo's Deli. And sometimes we had large amounts of meat that would go bad. And I'll never forget the smell of rotting meat. And every time I read that verse or hear, you are the salt of the earth, I think of that bunch of smelly, rotten meat. Jesus is saying this world is corrupt. It is rotten. It's decayed. Gee, tell us how you really feel, Jesus. But it also reveals something about us. It implies that though the world is corrupt and rotten, you're to make a difference. You can stop that. You can influence. You are to be a moral disinfectant to a decayed and a corrupt world. I'll give you an example. I could give you several, but one that's obvious, slavery. Did you know that the early church was rubbed into a world, the Roman Empire, that had half of the population as slaves, 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. But as Christianity spread on the rotten meat of the Roman Empire, eventually slavery was eradicated. And it wasn't because the church picketed or had sit-ins or protested slavery. They simply preached the gospel, evangelized Jesus Christ, treated all people as if they were free, And eventually, slavery was stopped as a direct result of the church doing its job. Question. When was the last time your presence stopped corruption? Okay, that's too general a question. Do your friends find it easy to tell you a dirty joke or difficult? Would you walk in the room and they'd just be about to tell a joke? Oh, let's not tell this joke. He's going to say some God thing, some spiritual Bible verse. We've tried this before. He didn't appreciate it. That's a compliment. 
influential people preserve their culture, they stop corruption. So an influential person can be any person. They keep spiritual priorities. They are influential. They are tested at some point in their life. They preserve their society. Sixth and finally, influential people are dangerous. You didn't expect that one, did you? Let me rephrase that. Spiritually influential people can be dangerous. Why? Because they're influential. The higher one rises on the pedestal of influence, the further that person can fall if he falls. And in falling can negatively affect a large group of people. Every time a televangelist is caught in some mishap or affair or some great leader, that does something to the rest of the world. That's what Nathan said to David. David, you're forgiven, but you've got to know that you have given the Gentiles great occasion to blaspheme God and His people. Spiritually influential people can be dangerous because they attain visibility. That's why influence carries with it the necessary responsibility of integrity. Real, authentic fabric of faithfulness to God. That is what makes an oak tree, not a tumbleweed. Spreads its shade for years and years to come. One of the reasons that uh, I selected this series at this time for our church is because of what I see in our church. Good things. Great things. We're at a place where we've seen lots of people leave and start their own churches in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. We've seen many of our people go out as missionaries and start mission stations and schools and impact other cultures. We've seen lay leadership raised up in the community and be movers and shakers in the church and their families and their communities. And I love it. But this is a warning to all of us. If we begin well, it's not just how you begin, it's finishing strong, staying with it for years to come if God is using you. One little guy walked into a pet shop with his dad and his dad promised him that he would get him a puppy that day. So the little boy's holding his dad's hand. They walk into the store, go over to the dog section. The kid looks through the window and sees all these dogs. And dad says, pick out any puppy you want. The little boy's all excited, looks around, can't make up his mind. Finally, the dad says, okay, it's time to go now. Which puppy do you want? And the little boy, seeing the dog that's wagging its tail ferociously, said, I want the one with the happy ending. As you see all these heroes in First and Second Samuel, I bet you'd say the same thing. I want the life with the happy ending. I want the one that at the end has become the oak tree, not the tumbleweed, not the blotch on society, but something that has contributed well to the well-being, discipleship, and evangelism of others. 